Good to see you. Uh, if you're new here, my name is Joel and I'm one of the leaders here at Christ the King. Uh, we're in the book of Samuel, so uh, the words will come on the screen when I read from it. But uh, every week we have teaching from the Bible and uh, for this last few months we've been in this long book of the Bible. We're in chapter uh, 22 from 1 Samuel and I'm going to read it, then we'll pray and then we'll get right into it. So uh, if you follow it with me, we're in verse 1. Right up to the end. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became captain over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and then they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. Now, Saul heard that David was discovered, and the men who were with him, and Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and Commanders of hundreds, that all of you have conspired against me. No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitab, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitab. And he said, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, and that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I've inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priest of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and didn't disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, You, turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests. And he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. 
And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant. Ox, donkey and sheep he put to the sword. One of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitab, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doag the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me, be not afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safe keeping. Let's just pray together before we get into this. Father, we are so grateful to you for your amazing, undeserved love towards us. And we thank you, Father, for the gift of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who changes everything. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit, who you give to the thirsty, so that our eyes will be opened our hearts will be enlarged and our, our faithfulness and fruitfulness will grow as we see the Lord Jesus more clearly in the Scriptures. We pray, come Holy Spirit, speak to us as we look in this book now. Speak to us and change us according to your mercy. And we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay, well... Uh, this week I was thinking about a, a story that, that uh, struck me enormously when I, I, I uh, read it a few years ago. The um, 1950s or 60s, I think it was, there were what was called the Nuremberg Trials. And what happened in these was that various war criminals from uh, the Second World War were put on public trial to face charges of genocide. War crimes, taking innocent people, Jews particularly, and putting them into death camps where they were systematically put to death in, in huge numbers. And one of the most famous to stand trial was Adolf Eichmann, who was pretty much the, the architect behind the whole Auschwitz death camp in Poland. And there was a Jewish witness who stood in the, the witness stand to face Eichmann and give evidence against him. But when he stood up in the box, he had a breakdown. He, just, he, he fell down in tears and wept and couldn't even give evidence. He was so overwhelmed with the sight of this terrible man who he'd suffered under for years during the war. People said to this man, what happened to you? What, why did you break down in, in the witness box? Was it because you were having flashbacks of this man and the camp, or is it because the look in his eyes was so wicked and evil and you saw something so sinister in him? And remarkably, the guy said, no, it was none of those things. The thing that caused me to just lose it was that I saw a man responsible for the deaths of three million people, and he looked just like me. He looked like anybody. He just looked like a normal man. And he was devastated by the reality he came to terms with on that day, that there is such a malignant power that works across the hearts of all people that if it's allowed to, can become so, not just sinister, but violent as to put many to death. And what you see in this graphic story is King Saul at his worst 
this story gets told a lot in, in sort of different stories, in more recent stories from Macbeth to Anakin Skywalker. You know, the kind of the righteous leader or even king who turns and becomes wretched and violent and criminal in the way he'll put, be prepared to put to death not just enemies but women and children who are innocent of any crime. And certainly it's not out of any sense of justice that he does this. It's out of sheer paranoia. Sheer hatred, sheer pride and greed and fear that he's doing this wretched thing. And what the Bible is trying to help us to see is that evil, if, if it's unrestrained, if it's allowed to take its course, will do brutal, horrifying things. And the fact that it doesn't do so many the fact that we don't live in Brighton aware of you know, genocide on every street corner or, or wars and rumours of wars in our very streets isn't necessarily because everyone here is, is sort of pure and righteous, but the Bible would put that more down to God's kindness in restraining the, the inherent power of evil that's actually within people. God keeps it from getting as bad as it could. It's like God holds humanity on a leash, won't let it get as bad as it could. Because why? Well, he's kind. He's patient. He wants to give us time. He doesn't want the world to go up in smoke. He wants there to be an opportunity for people to turn to him and repent and say sorry and change and come and worship the true God. That's why the world is not as bad as it looks like in this very chapter. But make no mistake, Jesus himself made it very clear when he said in John's Gospel, the world is under the power of the evil one. The world is under the power, under the dominion of the evil one. That might sound an incredibly over-the-top thing to say, but the Bible tells this story from beginning to end of a world that is under the authority of an evil kingdom. But it also, it also tells the story throughout of another kingdom, the right kingdom, the pure kingdom, the humble kingdom, the just and true kingdom that God is determined to restore for the well-being of creation, that everything will be set right, that actually even the power of evil will be banished entirely from God's good creation. That's God's plan. That's the plan that this whole book documents from start to finish. And what we see here is just a trace of that story because you see a wicked, evil king ruling over a vast empire of wickedness. But you also see this humble king-to-be, this David, who's not sitting on a throne, who's not giving orders out to an army and, and, and calling on people to slaughter innocents. He's sitting in a cave in the desert. He's humbly waiting for his calling to be fulfilled. He's waiting for the kingdom. He's waiting for the throne. He's waiting for things to come and be as they should be. And in, in, in doing that, David is actually a, a beautiful kind of picture of the Bible's most glorious king. The Bible is all about one king in the end. David gets to be a kind of prototype. David gets to be like the kind of black and white TV version of the massive flat screen HD TV that comes when Jesus turns up. Jesus is, is God's king in perfect color and pristine clarity. Jesus is the king of kings. David is a, lot, a, lot, a little brother, like a, like a kind of picture of what it will be when Jesus reigns. 
And Jesus himself said to the people who followed him, Listen, the world is under the power of the evil one, but I have overcome the world. And he who is not for me is against me. And the question I want to ask you here in this meeting today is, what kingdom are you building? Which king are you getting behind? Which horse are you backing? Are you, are you supporting the kingdom of this world? You might say, well, no, I'm not, I'm not supporting it. I am my own kingdom. I, I don't need a king. I don't, I don't need some authority or rule in my life. I am I'm my own authority. Thank you very much. But the truth is, if you say that, then you're actually, you're just kind of, you're saying the same as thousands and hundreds of thousands and millions of people all over this country. You may sound very unique in your own mouth, but actually you're saying the same thing. And Jesus says, yeah, it's the same kingdom of this world, this kingdom that, that refuses the authority of God. Jesus comes and says, listen, there's a better way. There's a better kingdom. And you can see some characteristics right here of, of the, the kingdom that David represents. It's really different. Have you noticed? It, it's built on servanthood. And humility. So Saul's building his whole kingdom on his own glory and power. And anything that upsets the balance of his power, well, he's freaked out by it. He's freaked out to the point of ruthless murder. That's the kind of kingdom he's building. He's, he's building a kingdom that's there to feed him. He wants everything on a plate for himself. David is building, well, look what it says in verse 2. While he's out there in this cave in the, in the desert, everyone who is in distress, everyone who is in debt, everyone who is bitter in soul, gather to him. I'll tell you, I'll be honest, left to myself, if, if, if 400 such people turned up to me, I'd say, I've got my own problems. Go and trouble someone else. Go and find another king. What does David do? Next sentence. He became captain over them. They were with him, about 400 men. He's got this army of 400 losers. And he's saying, okay, okay, okay. I know you are 400 losers with 400 lists of problems. 400 lists of reasons why no one would want to have anything to do with you. You're trouble. But I'll look after you. I'll serve you. I'll be your captain. That's unusual. You need to know that's not how politicians normally behave. Okay? This is a different order. It's also different in that it's so unimpressive on the outside. Don't you think? Saul is the official king. And he's sitting there under the tamarisk tree, spear in his hand. And all his servants were standing about him. That's what it says in verse 6. He's kind of got this... You know, obvious authority, lots of symbols of authority. I'm, I picture him on a throne, even under this tree. And he speaks like one with authority. He's kind of, he's manipulating everybody and sulking. And everyone's kind of, oh gosh, we've got to sort out the king. Because he's the king, he's the official king. And David is this shepherd boy. He's out in the desert in a cave. There's nothing outwardly impressive about what David's building. The thing that's impressive is, is the kingdom of this world. And listen. That's usually the case. Usually. The kingdom of this world usually looks more impressive than the kingdom of God on the outside. It does. It just tends to. I mean, you look at Jesus himself. He's the one that is the king of kings. 
how does he introduce himself to the world? Does he turn up in a palace? Does he turn up with an entourage with you know, 25 silver limos and, and, and ambassadors and you know, a huge flurry of photographers and journalists? No, 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 no. no. Nothing. No website, no blog. Nothing! Just you know, a stable in a, in a one-horse town where the horse is dead, Bethlehem. I mean, it's a pathetic story. He's just out there in the middle of nowhere. In a stable, born in a manger. This, this is not what you'd expect. But listen, what's not impressive outwardly is gloriously powerful inwardly. And this is the same thing here. David's gathering these people. It's not that impressive on the outward, but what's happening, make no mistake, something awesome is happening underneath. It just tends to be that way. When you get involved in Jesus' kingdom, when you get involved in the church, in the church, in church life where people are loving Jesus and worshipping Jesus, truth be told, it doesn't always look impressive on the outside. And maybe that's not always a bad thing. It humbles us. It keeps us ready to be like Jesus, who's just so different than what we might expect. But what he's doing inside your heart. Jesus said to this great teacher in John chapter 3. Jesus met this teacher who came to him at night time because he was so embarrassed to be seen with Jesus. He came and met him in the middle of the night. And he said to him, we, we, we've heard that you're a good teacher. Tell me a bit more about your teachings. And Jesus said to him, listen, unless, if you want to see the kingdom of God, if you want to see the kingdom of God, the kingdom, the power, the glory, you need to be born again. You need to be born on the inside. Something needs to happen inside you, right in your gut that, that isn't there right now. You're not even alive yet. <laughs> you look so impressive in Jerusalem with your, your robes and your official position. But friend, you are not even, a, you're not even alive. You need to be born again. That's what this kingdom is like. It, it's, it's not necessarily to do with the outward appearance, but God being with it makes all the difference. I remember seeing a cartoon that really brought this home to me. I remember the first frame of this little kind of four-frame cartoon is these two boats next to each other on the ocean. One is a, an ocean liner, you know, steel hull, really impressive. And it's sidling up next to this wooden vessel, which is big, but it's made of wood. And you realize, oh, it's, it's Noah's Ark, because it's got, you know, like the giraffe going like this, you know, like you, know, you have in the kids' books. And uh, so you think, oh, it's this, okay, the ocean liner... Noah's Ark. Okay, I get the picture. Next frame is, is the captain of the liner booming out through his megaphone. That boat looks very, very, uh, you know, it doesn't look very trustworthy. This is a steel hulled ocean liner. Come over here, you'll be safer. And then the next frame is all the animals and Noah and, you know, all these people with beards going over this gangplank onto Noah's Ark. And uh, you see the last frame and it pulled this, this, this Noah's Ark's going one way empty. And everybody's going this other, this great ocean lies, it goes away, and you see the back of it, and it says Titanic. <laughs> and it's a great way of making the point. We can be so impressed with the, the outward show. Saul looks much more impressive outwardly. David's just gathering this kind of ragtime band of followers who, oh man, they don't look impressive. But God's with them. These exiles, these no hopers. These losers, these misfits, these don't belongs. God says you belong. And I'm planning something great. I'm going to put this, this man in a cave on the throne of the world. 
And his descendant, his descendant's descendant, is going to be the king of the universe, the son of David, Jesus Christ. Something's beginning here with this band of brothers. It's so exciting. I love this story. I love it. I've spent, my, my dad used to read it to us when we were kids. Just, it just grows on me every time I read it. Doesn't it always, though, when it's stories of things that just take off? You know those stories, you know, movies like, like The Social Network with the, uh, the, this kind of bunch of misfits who make this kind of weird program called The Facebook. And it looks a bit like, what's that for? It doesn't seem to be very significant, but by the end of the film, it's changed the world. And <laughs> probably all your lives, you know, into the bargain. Just things that begin so small. And when you watch those movies, you know, which start small and some leader just has a crazy idea and it just goes global, you get inspired. You feel the excitement of it. You just love the atmosphere, even if it's not a particularly good empire that's being built. But when it's God's empire, when it's God's kingdom, it's doubly exciting. I've got to say, I, I love it when the church is thriving. And the church is growing and buzzing and there's new people and there's a sense of expectation and adventure and people coming together with a sense of mission. It feels a bit like that in this church, actually. At the moment, it does. I mean, I, you know, I, don't, I hope you don't mind me saying I know that's not very English of me, not very characteristic, but I, I'm quite encouraged at the moment. I just find it a really weird feeling. I actually feel, wow, there's a few, I mean, this... We ask for an offering and say, let's, let's, let's just, we just let's pray. Let's go for 200 grand this time. And God shows up. That's a, do you realize how astonishing it is in a recession to raise 200,000 just for one gift day? That's big. You go for 3,000 at Easter. We nearly hit it. Over eight services at the Easter weekend. 3,000 people. We're starting new Sites across the city, over in Shoreham, we started last September. It's growing. It, it, the race course, they started in January. 27 people, as far as I know, have responded to the gospel. In, by the time that they watch this video, it's probably gone up to 3 million. It's just kind of, <laughs> what's going on? Well, you know, horses getting saved. It's, it's kind of a, an astonishing wave. It's like, kind of like what I see here. This, this, this little band of no-hopers, and there's 400 men. And actually, you read the next chapter, it's gone up to 600 men. And that thing, you know, with women and children, that would be well over 1,000. And not only that, but it's got people like Gad and, and at the end of the chapter, Abiathar. Well, that's, that's a prophet and a priest. So you've got a king, a prophet, and a priest, and a band of brothers. Wow. Wow. Love it when a team starts to form, when leaders start to join hands and say, we're together, we're building God's kingdom, we're, we're an army now. It feels like that. To me, I look around the church, I look around the sense of guys and girls just feeling caught up in something great. People making massive decisions, parting with big sums of money, moving their house to get on with the mission, getting rid of big chunks of their life that they don't need anymore, and they never needed in the first place. It's so inspiring. Kingdom of God. What, what are you building? There's only one kingdom that's going to last forever. God's church is the community of the kingdom. The people that belong to the kingdom. We're building it. We're building it as much as we can, as fast as we can, to reach as many as we can. To bring transformation to a world that says, no, it's locked up. This nation, this city belongs to the evil one. Jesus says, I have overcome the evil one. 
And on this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. That's, that's what you belong to. If you're a Christian, you belong to such a glorious, everlasting community of people. And, and friends, why would you treat that half-heartedly? Why would you do anything less than what David does? Why would you not put your back into it wholeheartedly and serve your heart out? Why would you not think this is the greatest cause that's ever been? People all over the world die for feeble, false causes. Pouring their lives out into isms and beliefs that have been shown to be useless. They've got feet of clay. They don't work. People pour their lives and their deaths into these things. I get to give my life to something that I know is going to last forever. Surely as Jesus rose from the dead, the church will rise. Friends, give yourself to the right king. Do what David did. Do what these people did. Whoever you are, I mean, this is what I love about it. It's, it's a glorious prospect, but it's kind of humbling, isn't it? I mean, everyone who is in distress, everyone who is in debt, everyone who is bitter in soul gathered. You might think, well, I'm so, poor old David. I would hate to have... Be, imagine being surrounded by people like that. What a horrible community. What a bunch of losers. I would hate that. Hello. <laughs> Look around. That's kind of what the church is. That's it. That's it. I'm sorry. I, I mean, I, I don't... I, I, that's what it is. You know, I'm not trying to rub it in your face or anything, but the point is that that's what we are. And if you think you're not, then you are even more. (laughs) It's going to take longer for you to face up to it. And it's going to be a painful time having God prove it to you. Through experiences and seasons of life where you realize, oh man, I've got nothing to boast in. I've got nothing to be proud of in the end. In the end, nothing. I am distressed. I am in debt and I'm bitter in soul. I don't have the answers. I don't have what I need. And so I come to God and I even come to the church saying, God, is there a place for me? See, truth is, because the church is so lame and marginalized in 21st century Western culture, a lot of people come to church thinking, well, I better make my appearance at church and just brighten everyone's day up. You know, I'm so glad that uh, these people get to see me at church. It must do them so much good. These poor souls that go to church. I get to hang out during the week with people who are actually (laughs) valid people. But then someday I just make my appearance at church to help those poor people along, those sad, lonely people who need church. Obviously, I don't need church, but I go along to do them a favor. Friends, if that's your mentality, you've missed it by trillions of square miles. You've totally missed it. Because the only way to come into the kingdom of God, the only way to come into God's house is like these people. To understand your distress, to understand your need. If you want further proof, let's do it. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It's in the New Testament. This is where Paul, the apostle, is talking to a church in Corinth City, just like Brighton in many ways. He says to these people, Consider your calling, brothers. (laughs) Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose Noah's Ark to shame the Titanic. 
God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. That's better than being accepted by anybody. All the things that this passing evil world has to offer you can compare not one jot to, those, to just one of those priceless commodities listed in that verse. Wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. I haven't got time to explain all these words, but trust me, they're amazing. <laughs> Every one of them. You could write books, good books about them and just get lost in them. It's, it, they're delicious words. They're sweet words. They're beautiful to taste. You, to know the redemption, being set free, that's what it means. Sanctification, being set apart to be pure, not stained and filthy anymore. Righteousness, to be counted, declared not guilty by the highest judge in the universe. What, could, what is there like this? Wisdom. Well, the things is so wise, Jesus has become our wisdom. We can trust him. Even when we don't know what the answers are. We don't know what to do with our lives. We don't know what to, which way to turn. We don't know. We have difficulties in daily decisions, let alone the big decisions. Christ Jesus has become for us wisdom from God. Wow. Because of him, you, you are in Christ and you have all these things given you. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Please don't be impressed with yourself. How foolish. How stupid to be impressed with yourself and to imagine that by your own glory and self-esteem and self-worth, you have some ticket into some glorious eternal pantheon of, you know, I'm, I'm worth it because the Pantene adverts tell me so. Don't do, don't, what is the Bible? The Bible's such an honest book. I know it's not pleasant to be told that maybe you're not worth it, you know? In yourself, I'm not. I tell you, I'm not worth it. For he's become for me everything I could want or desire or need. And in him, I have everything. And he gives me worth, he gives me dignity, he gives me a role, he gives me a part to play in his eternal kingdom. Friends, don't. Be so foolish as to boast and be proud of anything in yourself. To put your confidence in the flesh. In, in this passing age, don't be stupid. Be like these people. I'm distressed. I need God. I, need, I do need him. The people that come into the kingdom of God poor and broken have a head start. That's why churches tend to flourish in the developing world, frankly. People that are sick have need for a physician, Jesus said, not, not the healthy. People that think they've got it totally wired, they're just made up, I'm fine. Man, you're going to have a hard time getting to know God. Because he will take as long as it takes to prove to you that you need him. He will. If it takes 40 years, he'll use it. In David's case, it took 20 20 years of living in the wilderness, being on the run, under persecution, weary, exhausted, 
panicking, anxious, running from place to place. How do I survive? Who will protect me? Who will look after me? Until he finally gets to places like this where he starts to gain strength in the fact that God is enough for him. Gets to know God. He gets to put less trust in himself. Is that, is that how it is for you? Or are you still very pleased with yourself that you come to church and grace us with your presence and help out because we need some help? Help God out. Help out the kingdom of God. I'm so pleased that, that I'm not like those people who can't help, those needy ones that can't. They can't possibly help. But I've got tremendous gifts, so I can help. It doesn't sound like these people. You need to be more like these. You really do. I'm telling you, you do. It will be really dangerous for you if you're not. Not so you can stay there. But, but so you can carry other people in the long run. The people that know they're weak, they have a chance of becoming strong. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is, theirs is what? Theirs is the kingdom of God. The kingdom. Kingdom belongs to those who are just totally unimpressed with themselves. Poor in spirit. I've got nothing much to give. Maybe God can help me. Maybe he's enough for me. Blessed are you, Jesus. Blessed are you. you you're, there. you're nearly there. <laughs> you, you're getting it. You're, poor, you're broken. You can't do it. Blessed are you. Well done. Keep thinking that way. Keep coming, keep coming, keep coming. Keep needing me. Keep longing for me. Do you know what will happen to you? You'll start getting strong. You'll get stronger and stronger and stronger. By my grace, you'll find strength to carry hundreds with you. That's what we need. That's what Brighton needs. It doesn't need loads of Christians who think they're it. It needs loads of Christians who know they're not it, but by God's grace, they can carry hundreds. That's what Shoreham needs. That's what the race course needs. We need people who don't come to church. There's three different kinds of people who come to church. There's people who are too proud to see that they need God. There's others who know that they're not and they come needing. Need, help me, help me, I've got needs. Help me, help me, help me. I need, I need, I need, I need, I need, I need. Who shall I phone up tonight? Which elder shall I pester tonight? I need everything. Help me, help me. And that's all right. It's all right, but don't stay there. You're not meant to stay there. Because the third kind of people that have found strength by God's grace. They've learned how to feed on him. Get met, that needs met. And they can start looking outwards. They can start serving. They can start loving. <laughs> and people that walk in this room, people that walk in your small group, your, your zone, people that, people that walk into Shoreham, walk into the race course, who are stuck and confused, whether they're rich or poor, educated or, or totally uneducated, addicted to all kinds of drugs or just addicted to their own mediocrity. Whatever they are, they are stuck. And the answer, friends, is not the pastor or the site leader. The answer is you being like David, finding strength to say, I can look after you. I can help you. I can serve you. By God's grace, I can serve you. That's, that's God's plan. That's God's intention. He wants to create that kind of strength in you. I mean, that's amazing, isn't it? How did David become like this? Because you, maybe you were here last week. David was panicking in the last chapter. 
He was. He was running from place. He's wetting himself. I've got to Ahimelech. I've got to go to the king of, of the Philistines. Of someone, he pretended to be mad for a few verses just to try and get out of trouble. What can I do? He's panicking. He's looking for the last resort. Something has happened to him by the beginning of chapter 22. He's found strength. He's found grace. He's even saying, I'll, I'll look after my parents. That's a big deal. Some of you, you're in your late 20s and your parents are still looking after you. You need to start saying, I will look after my parents. I, I, will, I will carry people by God's grace, by the strength he provides. I will carry others. He's even caring for his parents and for his brothers who are horrible to him. <laughs> he's forgiving them. He's loving them. That's astonishing. But how did it happen? Is it because David's very good at putting on a show? <laughs> Is it because he's, he's so impressive? You know, he's just photogenic, is David. No, it's not. Let's look. There's, there's one little thing that I want to touch on before I finish. It just blows me away. I love this. Do you remember that last paragraph where the, the priest's son, Abiathar, comes to David? This guy, his dad has been murdered. His whole family has been murdered. In fact, he is the only survivor from an entire village. That's hundreds of deaths. Turns up at David's door looking for help and refuge. He says to David what's happened. And David says to him in verse 22, I knew on that day when the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul. I have occasioned the death of all the persons in your father's house. What? So you're not going to cover it up, David? Because that's what I would do. That's what I do. Sorry, did you say that your father was killed? Oh, I'm terribly sorry. I don't know anything about it. Disaster. Oh, how awful. I'm so sorry. I would never have been involved in something like that. What does David do? He says, do you know what? If you're looking for someone to blame, if I hadn't got involved, your dad would still be alive. What kind of leader, what kind of politician is he? He's a politician who's not impressed with himself. He's transparent. He says, Listen, I'm not the answer. Abiathar, I am not the answer. I'm not a good guy. I blew it. I blew it. If you can't get to the point where you can say, I blew it. I failed. It was my fault. It wasn't other people's fault. Even though I'm bitter and, and, and dejected and messed up and I'm in debt, it's not someone else's fault. I can't play that card anymore. I did wrong. I need help. But this is, this is almost funny. It says in verse 24, after he's just told him that he, he practically killed his whole family, he says, stay with me. Be not afraid. For he who seeks my life, seeks your life. What? How is that supposed to comfort anybody? Imagine that. Someone goes, yeah, I was responsible for your whole family's death. Stick around. <laughs> You're going to like me. I'm a good guy. What? So, and, you know, and by the way, the guy that killed your whole family wants to kill me too. Stick around. What's he saying? What's he, he's saying, listen, this is what he's saying. He's saying, I'm not impressive. God's with me. I, don't, I can't explain it. <laughs> I don't know why he's with me. He just is. And, and he's with you too. If you come with me, I reckon he'll look after you like he's looking after me. That's what this city needs. It's people who aren't impressed with themselves, but people who are so impressed with God. So impressed with his mercy, his sovereignty, his grace. What was David doing the whole time he was in the cave? What's he famous for in this season of being in the cave? Well, the thing he's most famous for is the songs he wrote. We touched on this 
last week. Oh, let me read you another one. Just three verses from Psalm 57. It says, it even says, he wrote this when he fled from Saul in the cave. Think what's David doing in 1 Samuel chapter 22? He's writing words like this. Verse 2, I cry to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. That is a huge verse. You could unpack that for months. He fulfills his purpose. In other words, everything God plans in the universe for me. (laughs) That's ridiculous. That's what the Bible teaches. God is fulfilling a plan for the blessing of his children through all of history. The Bible in the New Testament puts it this way. God works all things together for good to those who love him. That's how David's found strength. He's realized, I'm on the run, and I'm panicking. I'm taking things into my own hands. I'm trying to solve my own problems. And then he stops and realizes, I can take refuge in God. I can find strength in God. I can find love and mercy, faithfulness, steadiness. And because I find those things, yeah, I'll I'll carry these 400. I'll carry this priest's son who's just had his family wiped out. I'll look after you. No, I can't do it myself. But I believe God's with me. Do you know that? You can know that. You can know God with you in your life. So that you're a blessing to people. At work, in your family, your neighborhood. Oh, I couldn't be like that. Why not? Well, because I'm useless. That's the whole point. I did say that a minute ago. Yesterday, I'm in Berlin. We're serving a church plant there. God's called us to serve cities in Europe and to help plant churches God spoke to us. No question. God told us. No question. Yesterday, I'm sitting in this room in Berlin with this little church plant of these amazing people who've given up their lives and their jobs and everything to be in this city, serve God. And I'm sitting there thinking, what have I got to offer these people? They want to hear me preach. Oh, my goodness. This is going to be rubbish. How can I serve them? I felt God say to, say to me, you will serve them very badly if you care what they think of you. To stop it. Stop thinking of what they think of you and needing so much from them. Trying to be Saul. Trying to have the kingdom. Trying to, I'm in control. I want a claim. I want to be lifted. I want to be on the throne. You'll do really badly. No, they won't like me. They won't laugh at my jokes. No, they won't. They're German. They won't laugh at any of your jokes. <laughs> There's no hope. Just don't even try that. So I sat there and just thought, you know what? I'm not going to even try to be liked by these people. I, pre- I went on for too long. I just rambled. I just talked. I just thought, oh, let me see. And I, th- I felt, I was, was that bad? I felt like God said, don't you dare. Don't you dare start caring about whether they thought it was good or not. Don't you dare. I told you to help plant churches in Berlin. I'm with you. Friends, if you know God's with you, even in the cave, it stops being about you anyway. And you start serving him with a different kind of strength, different kind of power. And if you don't know Jesus Christ, and we're just going to close now, I'd like the musicians to come and join me. You desperately need to know him. You need to come to the true king. Friends, there is a king of this world. You might not believe that he's real, but that's just because he's good at disguise. He is. And he makes you think that you're free. He likes you to think that you're going to have a lovely free life. He's good at that. He can deceive you. But he's a bloodthirsty, wicked, evil tyrant. 
And there's a true king who became actually distressed. He became in debt. He became bitter of soul. The Bible says that he took our bitter cup. When the king of kings came into the world, he, it's like he drank this cup of disgusting, bitter filth, which is my sin and your sin, and all the wickedness, all the evil, all the ungodly, impure, the lusts, the greed, the pride, the jealousy, the selfishness, everything about your life that stinks. Jesus took it on himself. Jesus became everything that's wretched. No wonder he's good at relating to wretched people. So you don't need to come and prove how good you are tonight. Jesus has done everything for you. Come to him. Even as we take bread and wine, why don't you call out to him? Ask him to come into your life.